0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This morning is the third message in a series that we've started called Touch Points. And we're talking about touch points for faith. Areas of overlap in our lives specific points of contact where we need to see and trust God to move. And it really feels like we're in a time where a lot of us feel as though talk is especially cheap and we're increasingly kind of weary of of this onslaught of, of just words and information. And so we're crying out again. If you're like me, you feel like you're crying out again for a demonstration of the spirit in power. A demonstration of God's spirit in power. And so what we've been looking at is that faith is naturally risky because faith is this confident trust in God. And so it may be the risk of doing something uncomfortable or something that is going to humble you, like we looked at last week in the story of Naaman. It may be the risk of something embarrassing, but without that specific risky situation, that point of contact for trust, where we have something on the line, faith has no opportunity to be exercised. Because you can't really trust something unless you stand to lose something, I would say. You can't really trust unless you stand to lose something by that trust. And so, I believe we've already begun to see a renewed culture of faith springing up, trusting God for those risky touch points in our lives. And so I've had lots of reports through the week of ways that God has come through in specific situations in people's lives. And so let's keep expectant. Let's keep on sharing those reports with one another Don't just believe, you know, like theoretically about some of these things, but really take a moment as we're in this series, in this time, to look at your life, to look at things where there's a gap between what you believe God has said and what the circumstances are saying and say, God, I'm going to trust you to close that gap. Whether it's your job, whether it's your finances, whether it's something in your family, a broken relationship, whatever it is, Let's inject faith into that situation and ask God, how can I respond and invest into that touch point? And then expect him to do something. You know why? Because that's what he loves to do. (laughs) He's faithful. And when you trust him, he proves himself faithful. And so let's keep expectant. let's keep sharing those reports with one another so that we're building A renewed atmosphere of faith in a time where we desperately desperately need it and as you share those things people are going to be encouraged and we'll see each other's faith grow as we hear what god's doing in each other's lives okay so share those reports send them in email them we can share them publicly if that's appropriate for what it is so one of the dangers in all of this we're talking about trusting God for risky things and and trusting him for specific things, is that it could become easy to turn faith into some kind of superstitious formula. You want this, you don't have it, pray this sentence and boom, you'll get it. Magic, right? Well, whenever you develop some sort of formula for faith, you're actually betraying the nature of faith. Faith is relational, and we're going to get into that a little bit. But the title of today's message is Faithful, so faithful, but full of faith, thinking, feeling, and doing. Faithful, thinking, feeling, and doing. And we're going to be looking at how faith transforms our mind, our heart, and our will. Because God isn't so interested in blessing us as much as he is transforming us through the blessings. He's not just interested in giving us certain things. He's interested in making us into a certain kind of people by the way that he blesses us. And so we're going to read from that most famous chapter on faith in Hebrews 11. And we're going to pull out—we're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to pull out a few passages to delve into this topic. So we want to begin by reading from verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1, where the author gives us this famous definition. Of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance. You could also translate it, it's the legal deed of guarantee. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction. In other words, it's the thing which fully convinces you of the reliability of things not seen. So, the first thing that we see in this verse is that faith is nothing superstitious. It's nothing strange. Faith is actually an elemental part of human life. Because faith simply means a confident trust that you can act on. Faith is a kind of trust that you're so naturally confident in that you act on it. Human life is impossible to live without that kind of trust. So I want to give you an example. Just a moment ago, I forgot to tell those of you in the room to take your seat, and yet You all took your seats, all right? Now, when you sat down, you acted on a confident trust that underneath your body, there was a structure called a chair. It was really there, it wasn't a hologram, right? It wasn't a figment of some magician's show. It was really there, and you had enough experience with things such as chairs you had enough knowledge of things that we call chairs to know that it's the kind of thing that you sit on that you confidently trusted. You simply sat. I don't think any of you thought about it. Maybe you look behind, but you sat, right? And so that is an implicit trust. It's a confidence that made you act. And that was totally reasonable. There's nothing strange or superstitious about that fact. And you might say, okay, sure, Ian, isn't it quite a different thing, though? You know, you're talking about chairs. That's a natural thing. Well, isn't it quite a different thing to have faith in God or faith in the supernatural? Well, there's a book by Norman Grubb, who is the founder of what's today InterVarsity, I think, and uh, it's called The Law of Faith. And he points out there's not two sorts of faith. There's not spiritual faith and natural faith. The difference is simply between the object of faith. So we not only trust the things around us, we also operate in the world by trusting the people around us. And when you trust a person who has a mind, a heart, a will, when you trust a person versus a, an inanimate object, It's not that faith all of a sudden morphs into some different kind of substance. It's that your level of faith increases because now you're dealing with things that can't be materially verified in the same way as with a chair. So for instance, I have faith in my wife. I know that she loves me. I have a confident trust in that. And yet, I can't materially verify that in the same way that I would inspect a chair. It takes a little bit more. It's a little bit more advanced, but it's essentially the same thing. So it requires more trust, more risk to have faith in a person, which is why we find it so hard. And and we all struggle with trust issues at different places, and especially if we've been hurt in the past. But what you can see is that everyone actually is a person of faith. It just depends what their object of faith is. Everyone has faith. Our economy, our relationships, our daily interactions, the things that we do without thinking, we do because we have an implicit trust that we confidently act on. Now, faith becomes a little bit deeper when we're talking about God. The same principle applies. It doesn't suddenly become some other thing. God is not an idea. God is a person. And so if I say I have faith in my wife, it not only means that I believe she exists, it not only means that I believe theoretically in the concept of what a wife is, (laughs) it means that I believe that I can trust her, right? It means that I am confident in who she is to act out of that confidence. And so if you're a Christian, the foundation of the Christian worldview is not only that there is a God, that God exists, but that actually he can be known. You can know God and you can know him to such an extent that you can trust him. You can bank your life. On him. So we not only believe God exists, but we believe that he can actually be trusted. And so this is the point. Faith in God is a confidence, not only that he exists, but that he's reliable enough to trust. And That's what it says in verse 6 of Hebrews, actually. And in fact, we're created for that kind of loving relationship. That's what faith is. And the thing that set the world on the wrong course, that that course of sin, that course of disintegration of creation, what was it? It was a breach of faith. It was a loss of that trust. And so when you read in Genesis chapter 3, the devil says to Eve, did God really say you would die if you ate of the, the fruit? Or is it That just God is afraid that if you eat it, you'll be like him. And so there was this planting of a seed of doubt that broke that trust. And then Romans 1 talks about the downward spiral of sin that took place as a result of that breach of trust. So when you read Romans 1, it says, By refusing to trust God, humanity became futile in their thinking. Thinking. And it says, God gave them over to their passions in the heart, and they began to do what ought not to be done. And so the point is that sin started with a loss of faith. Therefore, God's redemption was through restoration of faith. If the problem in the first place was a breach of faith, well, it makes sense that God's plan of redemption was restoring that faith. Now, sometimes we think that in the Old Testament, it was all about law and obedience, and the New Testament was about grace and faith, but that's actually a complete lie. It was always faith from the beginning. When you see that Abraham had this relationship with God, it says Abraham had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, faith— God declared was the good and proper way for a human being to relate to God. That's what righteousness means. It was faith from the start that pleased God. And now to become a Christian is to place your faith in Jesus. It's it's entering that relationship of trust where you learn to rely on him as we were always created to do. Romans 8.29 says that as you do that, your destiny in Christ, it says, everyone who's in Christ is predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, in Adam, that first image of God was broken by sin in every facet of our humanity. It was broken, and that was passed on to all of Adam's descendants. But then when you're in Christ, that Hebrews calls the second Adam, the new Adam, what happens is there's a beginning of a restoration of all of that brokenness in our humanity. Everything that sin impacted is reversed, and there's a process of beginning to set that right. And so it's the restoration of our minds. Our, Our thinking no longer has to be futile. We no longer have to be enslaved to our passions. Our hearts are redeemed. We can can have the mind of Christ, we can have the heart of Christ. And then it says our wills would be restored, that we would be and act as the body of Christ. And so (laughs) today's touch point is this. We want to ask, how do we go about applying faith to our mind, our heart, and our will so that we can grow up in Christ, so that we can grow up into who we're destined to be in him. And so we're we're asking God for specific touch points of faith. And what's most important in that is not just the answer to that touch point, but it's actually who we become as a result of that. Does that make sense to anyone in this room? Yes, okay. I can't see your faces because you got masks. So you can still respond like it's okay. God just doesn't want to give us the blessing. He wants to change us and transform us through the blessings that he gives us in our lives. That's the end goal, that we would look like Jesus. And so how does that happen? Well, I think it's, it's really helpful to begin by recognizing that each of us is wired in a certain way. So speaking really generally, each of us approaches life primarily either as thinkers, feelers, or doers. So we all have all of those aspects, obviously, and yet we all seem to lean towards one over the other two. So some of us approach life primarily as thinkers. We have a desire to know. to analyze. We we look for accuracy. If you're a person that gets really bothered by spelling mistakes, this might be you. (laughs) You want to know that the logic and the principles are sound before anything else. Now, others of us are primarily feelers. We say, well, what good is head knowledge if I am You know, if I don't feel it in my heart, if it's not authentic, if it's not real to me, we have a sense of the first thing that we want to do is we want to touch the reality of something. And so if that's you, you might be bothered by any hint of dryness or stuffiness in the church or any sense of lack of authenticity. If that's the first thing that bothers you, maybe that's you. And so there's still others of us who are primarily doers. And so if that's you, you might say, let's stop talking about it. Let's stop being all touchy-feely, and let's do something. (laughs) We want action. We want decisions. We want practicality. Or it seems worthless to us. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, either of yourself, or you're thinking, oh yeah, that's exactly that person, right? And so you see that on an individual level, but I also think we see it on a church level, on a corporate level, you see that different church traditions seem to favor a form of discipleship in, in one of these areas, primarily not a total neglect of the others, but, but maybe a focus on this one area. And so some church traditions you find really emphasize doctrine. What's really important is that you know what the word says. You got to know it. You got to understand it. Your feelings and your actions will follow, right? Others, other church traditions, really emphasize experience and emotions. What's important, not so much what you necessarily believe and that you understand this stuff, but you need to feel and experience the Holy Spirit. Yeah? And there's other traditions that are really emphatic about action. You need to obey God. You need to have a certain lifestyle. Maybe it's an emphasis on social action before the other things. And so a lot of times you see that we gravitate towards church traditions that fit how we're wired. That happens. But you also see that no church tradition 100% fits how we're wired. And so you see this a little bit of tension and dissonance. And I think you can see that by what you complain about. You know, the thinkers are there saying, like, we're just not preaching the word of God. We're just not getting the understanding that we need. And the feelers are saying, you know, we're just not ushering in the presence of God. You know, and the doers are saying, we're just not making an impact on the community. Right? And so we need all of those things. (laughs) We need all of those things, and we need a balance in those things. And that's part of the reason, thank God, that we're a body and not just a brain and not just a heart and not just hands and feet or a body, and the three function best together, right? So, but what happens is this, our personality and church background can often lead us to reduce the essence of faith to thinking or feeling or doing. But the really important point to make at this uh, juncture is that all of these things are important, but none of them is actually the essence of what it means to be a Christian. All of those things are important. I hope to see all of those things. And yet you can't reduce Christianity to any one of those three because to be a Christian is to be in Christ. Not just to understand the right things about him or to experience something of him or to act in the way that he acts, but to be in Christ. It's about your being. You belong to him. It's who you are. And so it can't be reduced to just believing a set of doctrines or having a spiritual experience or living a certain way because you can do all those things and actually not belong to him. What's important, what is essential, what is the essence is belonging to Christ. The root of Christian faith is in him. It's actually nothing in me or in you, in us. The root of our faith is in him. And so His being is what then, if we're, when we're in Him, when we belong to Him, that is what then produces fruit in our thinking, our feeling, and our actions. And so here's the next point. Our faith is rooted in Christ, the perfectly faithful one. Therefore, our whole lives, thought, feeling, and action, are to grow up into Him. And that growing up is a transformation. So how do we go about that transformation? That's what we want to spend the rest of this time looking at. There's an excellent book that I highly recommend by uh, Dallas Willard. It's called The Renovation of the Heart. And he points out in that book that there is a reliable pattern that is present whenever transformation occurs. So whenever you desire a transformation, there's always three things that happen as part of that process. Three things that are always present. The first thing that's always present is there must be vision. You have to see the thing that you desire. You have to see the transformation that you desire and want it. If you don't see and desire a transformation, the transformation is never gonna get started. But the second thing you have to have is an intention. So there's no good just having kind of a, oh, that would be nice if I could be like that. You actually, for the transformation to happen, you actually have to decide, I am going to pursue this transformation, right? And then the natural step after that is, you can't only desire it and then intend to do it. If you actually intend to do it, you have to then take the practical steps to do it, right? So he reduces it to the acronym VIM, like VIM and Vigor vision intention and means or sometimes I would put it as vision intention and a plan VIP and so Take an example of a transformation like like learning a language learning a language is a transformation because you can't Speak a language simply by your effort. There has to you have to undergo a transformation in your brain to have the ability to speak that language Okay, and so say that you want to learn Arabic Oh, no, let's take a better example. Say you want to learn French, okay? More closer to home for where I'm going to go. Say you want to learn French. The first thing that you need is a desire to learn French, okay? Now, everybody in England, for instance, learns French at school. Everybody does three or four years of French at school. But do you know how many people actually speak French in England? (laughs) I haven't met one yet, all right? Why? There's not that many French people in England. It's really not that useful for everyday life. And so most people don't see a value in it. They don't have a vision of how learning French would actually improve their lives. All right? If you have the vision, then the next thing is you need to actually intend to do it. You have to say, oh, it's not just, oh, how nice it would be to learn French. You have to say, no, I've decided I'm going to learn French okay and then you can't leave it at that you have to actually then find out the means of learning French you have to go out and buy the books and maybe get a tutor and do classes you have to have conversation with with native speakers maybe you have to go and spend a time in a French-speaking country so you see how vision intention and means and when you have those three things in place you can expect you will learn French it may not be perfect but you're going to learn you're going to have that transformation in your brain. And so, wherever there is a vision, intention, and specific means, we can expect transformation. So we want to ask, how does faith transform our thinking, our feeling, and our doing? And obviously we can't go into great depth in each of these things, so I want to offer some basic introduction to this. And we're going to start with our thinking, because In Hebrews, the very first thing that the author touches on as a result of faith is our thinking. So verse 3. Verse 3 says this. By faith, we understand. We comprehend. We grasp the idea. We understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. So the first thing that faith does is it begins to shape our worldview. It begins to shape our basic ways of thinking, our basic ideas about life and the world. And that statement in Hebrews uh, 11.3 is really a profound worldview statement. It's a statement of ultimate reality that the material world is not all there is, but rather God is ultimate. And that was the worldview of Jesus. That is what he knew, what he believed, what he acted confidently on. And you can tell that by his life, because that's exactly the basic idea that governed everything that he did, everything that he said. Jesus didn't treat anything on earth as the ultimate thing, the ultimate power. He didn't treat the authorities that way. He didn't treat the weather that way, or sickness, or even death. God was the primary reality. And so, let's apply that VIM to this. Does that vision attract you? Do you have a vision for what it would be like to know what Jesus knew? To understand the world in the way that Jesus understood it. Jesus understood physics and chemistry so much that he could change water into wine, right? He understood physics so much that he could walk on water. This is how God sees and understands the nature of reality. What would it be like for us to know what he knows and to be so confident in that to walk it out? Right now, have you ever decided to gain the mind of Christ? That's promised to us to gain the mind of Christ. And if you have decided that, well, then the next question is, what are the steps that we need to take to carry that out? How do I gain a change in my thinking so that I think and know what God knows? Faithful thinking is for our ideas, our mental images, and our patterns of thought to be saturated with God's reality. And I just want to tell you that that is available. <laughs> it's available to us. Secondly, faith transforms our feeling. Now, after defining faith in this passage, um, the author goes on to talk about the first examples of faith throughout Scripture. He talks about Abel, about uh, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. And it says so we're going to read from verse 13 where he, where he sums up. Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire. They desire. And other translations say they were longing for, or they were homesick for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So you see that faith not only transforms our basic ways of thinking, but it also transforms our feelings, the feelings that shape our experiences of life. And if you were to have faith in your feelings as Jesus did, well, what happens is, What you ultimately desire is so transformed that you can say something like Paul said. Paul said this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That is the statement of a person whose desires have been so transformed by faith that even suffering seems like nothing. I'm not there yet, but I desire that. (laughs) I desire that. What would it be like to have the emotional maturity of Christ? You know, Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions, love, compassion, anger, sadness, joy, anguish, and he didn't deny any of those feelings any more than the Psalms deny any of those feelings, but neither did those feelings become his master. They didn't dominate him. When he was tempted in the desert, when God removed his presence from him on the cross, Jesus didn't take those moments of depression and sense of abandonment and judge his identity in God. He didn't judge his faith on that moment of feeling. Feelings were a servant to them. And so what would it be like? to feel and experience life as Jesus did, to have that emotional depth and maturity and stability that he had. And so the question is, if you desire that, it is available to us. It's part of our inheritance. Have you ever intended I am going to grow up into the heart of Christ. I want to have the emotional maturity and stability that Jesus had because that is really attractive. (laughs) And if that's true, if you intend it, what are the steps that I need to take to gain it? And I'll do a super quick plug for the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course that we're going to be offering at some point again here in church, but you can go out and buy the book and do the courses on your own if you so wish. But that's an example of a one kind of step. Here's the point. Faithful feeling is growing in emotional maturity, setting our ultimate desire on God himself. And then lastly and very quickly, the will. The rest of this chapter, it recounts the stories of the heroes of faith throughout Scripture, the the incredible feats of faith and the things that they endured. And it's kind of like the Faith Hall of Fame. And they trusted God in the face of slavery, in the face of old age, in the face of tyrants, in the face of injustice, in the face of war and famine and persecution and death. Do we have a vision like that? What would your life be like if you applied faith to your lifestyle, to your actions? Are you inspired and and drawn to those great lives of faith? And those great heroes of faith from our own day? It's so good to read biographies of great people of faith for just that reason, to set our sights higher, And so if you have that vision, have you intended to do it? Have you said, yes, I am going to pursue a life of great faith in action. I'm not going to settle for this small American dream. I'm going to go for God's dream. That life is also readily available. And all that's missing a lot of times is our intent to actually do it. So once you intend to do it, what are the necessary steps that you need to take to gain it, to do it? to have the will of Christ. And so lastly, faithful doing is submitting our will to God, trusting that his way leads to our true good. And you might be thinking, well, (laughs) I've never done anything so amazing like that. I look at these great heroes of faith and I've never done anything like that. And I love that the very end of the chapter offers us this wonderful, Hope and reassurance. It says, All these, all these great heroes of faith, though they were commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We can have hope today to grow up into all these things because our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in flawed leaders or mortal priests. It's not in bricks and mortar. Our faith is in Jesus. And he is the better thing that God has provided. And if you're in him, he has promised, this is who you're going to grow up to be. But you have the opportunity today to participate in that growth and become fully mature in him. So because of his faithfulness, we're growing up in him to think, feel, and act faithfully. And I want to offer an opportunity here for any of us who may not have ever seen that vision of Jesus to say, wow, what would it be like to know that person and to become like that person? And I want to ask if you've never had that vision. We're all becoming like somebody. Who better to become like than Jesus? We're all becoming someone. Why not become like him? And so if that's you, you have an opportunity right now to enter into that relationship of trust with him. It's very simple. There's nothing superstitious or magical about it. It's simply coming to Jesus and saying, I want to trust you and learn from you. Transform me so that I can become like you and live with you forever. So if that is you, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And we can pray this together if you're online, if you're listening afterwards. If you've had that vision and you're ready to to make that intent today and then commit yourself to walking it out, pray this with me. So let's pray. Lord Jesus. I am so sorry for how I have lived my life apart from you. I turn away from all of my broken ways of thinking, all my broken ways of feeling, all my broken ways of acting. Thank you that you died on the cross to set me free from all of those things. And because you rose from the dead, You can offer me a brand new life. And so today, Jesus, I choose to follow you. I choose to learn from you. Please make me a new person. Give me your Holy Spirit. And I commit myself to walking with you from this day onwards.